Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, as we read verses 13 to 21. Probably a very familiar passage to many of us. Hear now the word of God. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowd and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that in you are all the stores of riches that we need. You are the Lord, the only wise God. Would you share your wisdom with us? We ask you because there is no one greater. There's no one we could go to. There is no one wiser. Would you send your spirit to give us hearts that not only hear your word, but love your word. Give us souls that treasure what you have to say to us about yourself and change us because we have met with you. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. I was thinking about the way that we read a passage like this where the narrative deals with this miraculous event. And I think that as modern people, we do not read this passage the way an ancient person would have read it. Because I think as modern people, we struggle with miracles in general when we come across them in the Bible. Uh, I mean that even as believing Christians who believe these things Uh, Even those who believe exactly what I said just a moment ago, that this is God's infallible, inerrant word. Even we have been impacted when we come across passages that deal with miracles. Here's what I mean. Even if we believe in the miracles, we live in a world that is deeply antagonistic to the miracles in Scripture. Uh, David Hume, for instance, is one of the earliest modern philosophers. He was famously a skeptic. Hume was completely convinced that the laws of nature never change and that they can never be violated. In other words, Hume decided that miracles were just impossible. He ruled them out as a possibility in the physical universe. And he believed that as a matter of faith. Hume had no evidence for this belief that miracles don't happen, except that he himself had never seen a miracle. He was aware of people who had claimed to see miracles before, 
But because he himself had never seen a miracle, he wrote them off. Now, David Hume's view of miracles has largely held sway ever since he expressed it in the 1700s, at least in the academy, certainly, and in the people who teach the people who teach the people who teach us. And and what that means is that even when we as Christians are completely convinced that this miracle took place, that these are historical events, that these aren't just parables, that these aren't just tall tales meant to have a a moral to the story, even we believe they took place in real time and space, we still tend to mostly focus on the existence and the reality of the miracle. You're right. When we read a miracle in scripture, we're just excited that it happened. And so we are on the defensive, in other words, when we read about miracles in Scripture. We're very stuck on sort of thinking like apologists, someone who defends the faith. We want to say, yes, this really happened. And we think that is the end of the story, the the miracle, the fact that it happened. But I think that defensiveness skews our perspective. See, our problem is we can be tempted not to get much deeper than the miracle itself. We oftentimes do not ask ourselves what the miracle means, why it happened, or what it says about God. We're just reacting enough to the world around us that the miracle itself is delightful and the miracle itself is amazing. And so this morning, I want us to try to push past that. I want us to try to move past that defensive posture, that apologetic posture, and instead go to the miracle itself. Think about what actually takes place, right? This morning, this is the feeding of the 5,000. And so let's look at the passage and let's read the passage, not as people who are reacting to modern notions that are influenced by philosophers like Hume. And instead, let's be excited to have a, a front row seat to this miracle and let's not look at it hoping to convince the unconvinced necessarily let's not be defensive today instead let's look at this miracle the way god intended this is a miracle that is a revelation of god's son something that tells us what jesus is like something that tells us what god is like we need to be careful not to think of the miracles in scripture as an end in themselves right the The miracle did not happen simply because it was time for a miracle. Um, Because the narrative hadn't had a miracle in a while. We've had a lot of teachings. We need a miracle. Instead, it's telling us something about Jesus. Everything about Jesus' life was planned and superintended and prophesied beforehand. From the place that he would be born to the family that he would come from to the meals he would eat or not eat and on and on. Everything about his life was planned, and that includes this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. The question is, why was it planned? Why did it happen? Why was it God's will for Jesus to feed 5,000 people on this hillside? What was the point? And so let's explore that. Let's explore this this morning through the feeding Itself, We're going to look at the miracle. And then I want us to look at the feedback. How do people respond to Jesus' miracle? And then finally, I want us to appreciate the facts. How does the reality of Jesus clash up against what the people think the miracle tells them about Jesus? And what should they be hearing instead? 
Who is Jesus really? We will see the answer here under those three points, the feeding, the feedback, and the fact. Um, Let's go right to the first, the feeding. So Jesus has been followed by a large crowd. Remember, he's just heard of the death of John the Baptist. You have to, we have to pity Jesus frequently in scripture, but especially here, his friend has died. What did the disciples of, of John do? They came to Jesus and they said, John is dead. Herod has beheaded him. Jesus then hears this and he withdraws to a desolate place by himself. He's, his intention is he's in mourning. This is a man whose cousin has died. This is a man who, who has lost someone very close to him, someone very important to him. He wants to mourn. He wants to, if you want to put it in modern language, he wants to process. He wants to go away and process He's surely he's praying. He's going before the father with these things. And yet the people have something else in mind. So Jesus is followed by this large crowd. This is a crowd that's seen his miracles. They've seen his healing. And instead of being annoyed with these people, and I have to be honest, I would be annoyed. I I say this all the time. It's good that I'm not God. It's good that I'm not Jesus. Um, because I would just be like, well, I'm going to go further away from you guys when I see the crowd coming. I'm going to really withdraw. And, and he doesn't do that. Instead, it says, we're so prone to self-pity. We are so prone to self-pity. And, and, and maybe ministers especially. Uh, and Jesus, instead of self-pity, instead of having compassion on himself and saying, well, I'm supposed to do self-care right now, Right. I'm supposed to do self-care. This is me time. This is time for me to have compassion on myself. It says Jesus had compassion on the crowds. He has compassion on these folks who come to him in their need and in their desperation. Um, And as time goes on, the disciples, they confront Jesus with a problem. They say, Jesus, we're isolated out here. These folks need to go feed themselves. And yet Jesus has a different plan. He says, they need not go away. Right? Your plan, disciples, is not the only plan. You can give them something to eat. So what kind of answer do the disciples give? Well, they answer by stating their limitations. They they begin by telling them something not about Jesus, but about themselves. Right? Um, they say, we only have five loaves here and two fish. So they learn some, Jesus learned something about them, and yet they have forgotten who they're here with, right? They give this very down-to-earth, very practical answer, very pragmatic. We don't have enough for 5,000 people. Everybody would get a nibble if we tried to feed them all of this. <laughs> and up to this point, the answer the disciples, of the disciples is aimed at getting Jesus to dismiss the people, in a sense, they're debating with him here, aren't they? They're saying, uh, Jesus, we hear you, but we have a better answer. We have a counterproposal, right? How can we get them to disperse Jesus? It's time. The day's over. We're done. They want him to see the impossibility of this. And so hopefully it'll make their lives easier, right? These men are overwhelmed. They are weak. And in their weakness, they want to retreat. They're very pragmatic guys. Um, I'm not talking about this, this session when I say this. They would make a wonderful church session um, because they're very stuck on what would work. Again, I'm not talking about our church session. It, boy, it really sounds like I am, but uh, I'm not. 
But I am going to say something self-critical about just Reformed Christians in general. One thing I love about the Reformed theological tradition is we have this long intellectual history. We have a pattern of thoughtfully laboring in the scriptures. It's a great, it's a great reputation to have, actually. Um, it's what we may be most known for. But here's the thing I fear. The thing I fear is that we are known for knowing things. We are known for having maybe, hopefully, solid theology. But we are not always known as people who run to God first. And, and that may not be fair. In fact, I would argue it's not fair. Um, but we are not known as those always who fully depend on God. Um, not in any kind of miraculous way. We, we tend to be the engineering types, the scholarly types, the intellectual types. In other words, the types who have the answers. And if we, can find, we have, don't have the answers, we seek the answers. And I would just give a word of caution if that's your tendency. It, it may be that we can be so careful and so thoughtful and so even rationalistic that we can do the same thing the disciples here do, right? How can we do this? This is beyond us. Um, we'll just have to send the people away, right? Sort of the equivalent of our budget won't allow that, that sort of thing. And all of these things are very responsible. That's why I would say they would make a good session because a, a session should be responsible, right? And yet it's also a bit, a bit of a false dilemma I'm setting before us, right? The idea that you, you must be irresponsible if you're going to be a faithful church. Uh, but it, it, isn't it true that Jesus is more interested in our trust of him than in our ability to plan well? I think it is. If I, had to, if I had to pick, I think Jesus would rather we step out while we're doing the right thing than that we aim low at things that we find to be more realistic. We're very reasonable. Very reasonable. But in our sensibility, it's possible that we can forget the Lord's faithfulness or, or at least that in our expectation we can find God's work to what we think is reasonable. That is a danger for us. That we measure what we think God could do or would do and we aim for that. And we forget who God is. The disciples want us to wave off from these people, right? Send them, they want Jesus to wave off from these people, right? Send them home, get, get away from them. Uh, it, and yet Jesus just moves right ahead. He takes the five loaves of, of barley and he takes the two fish. and He feeds the whole crowd with them. Wonderful, but also very unreasonable. Very unreasonable. He does an awful lot with an awful small amount. In verse 19, he prays for the food. I hope this doesn't seem like too much of a divergence, but uh, do you pray before you eat? The reason I, I ask is not that I think that what this passage is saying is you must pray before every single meal. Um, there's a difference between an indicative, something that happened, and an imperative, something we're commanded to do. Um, the biblical practice here appears to be that Jesus prays before serving these people. Um, he does it here. Uh, he does it again in Matthew 15. He does it in the Last Supper in the upper room. Um, pray, praying is not just a means to a miracle. It is a way of remembering where this food comes from. In, in Matthew here, he just, it just says that he prayed a blessing. He says a blessing. In Mark's gospel, Mark actually tells us the content of this prayer. He says that he gives thanks. He gives thanks before the meal. Um, in this case, none of this food would happen without the miraculous provision of God. Uh, there's another place where Jesus tells us that we should pray 
regarding what we eat. He says that we should pray for our daily bread. Ask God, provide us with our daily bread. And so, you know, maybe you pray before meals, especially if you're kids. Maybe you're like, why do my parents pray before meals? Why do we always do this? You know, think of it this way. What's the purpose of praying before you eat? Or what's the purpose of praying in general? It, it's a way, at least in this case, it's a way of, for us to say, you did it, Lord. You've given us what we need once again. All right, it's a method of giving God glory for something very mundane. What's more mundane than eating? I mean, unless, unless you live in poverty, eating every day is a pretty normal thing. In fact, for many of us, our day is organized around it, right? What's the first thing? Parents, your kids are on summer vacation. What's the thing that the kids always say around 1 o'clock? What's for dinner, right? <laughs> they already want to know what's for dinner. And you're like, wait a minute. We just ate chips for lunch. Um, you want more chips for dinner um, <laughs> it's so mundane you know, the whole day's organized around it if we're not eating we're thinking about eating and, and Jesus says pray for that thank God that you ate your chips or whatever it is that you had Right? it's a way of saying to God you keep us fed and you didn't have to you provided again you gave us our daily bread and then some um Praying before, before you eat isn't, isn't superstitious. I, I grew up in, in a family that prayed like this. My grandparents prayed like this. I remember my, my grandma praying like this. I can still remember my grandma Doris praying in this voice. But she would always say it like this because she was a very, very Kansan lady. She'd say it like this. She'd say, bless this food and nourish my bodies. <laughs> bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies. The translation from Kansan into... And I... And I know that, that sometimes our prayers can become rote. And I know for a fact that sometimes in my prayers at the, the meal table, I have defaulted to blessless food to the nourishment of our bodies. And I know my kids have heard that prayer from time to time. Well, I have one child that most Friday nights we end up having pizza at our house. And you wonder, where does it come from? It's, pizza every Friday is a great plan if that's what your goal is. And uh, one, of our, one of my children, whose name is, will not be mentioned because I have to pay them if I mention their names in the sermon, uh, will pray this way. Bless this food to our bodies, even though it isn't very healthy. It's like a very repeated uh, thing that we hear. Uh, and so the, the point of praying is not that it makes the food healthier or something like that. Uh, Lord, tell my body I just had broccoli, that kind of thing, right? It's not. It's a means of giving thanks. It's a means of saying, I know where this came from. I know who this came from. It's God. And so we're just remembering who gave the food. Um, we sometimes think our prayers have to be fancy, that it have, they have to be long and drawn out or flowery, and they really can just be as simple as, God, you fed us again. Thank you very much. Um, prayer doesn't have to be as flowery as it sometimes is here up at the church, right? Uh, sometimes it can be very simple. In fact, it should be very simple. Paul says, pray without ceasing. You, you pray simple prayers when you're praying without ceasing. And so Jesus hands the loaves and fish out and he keeps handing and he keeps passing and the disciples keep handing and he keeps going. And as he does, somewhere along the way, the real miracle occurs the bread keeps coming and the fish keeps coming and the crowd keeps eating 
Uh, and Matthew says they had enough to eat that they were satisfied is the language that Matthew uses. He doesn't say they got enough to keep from passing out. Um, he says they were satisfied. Jesus fills the crowd. He completely satisfies the crowd from such small beginnings. Now, there's an immediate lesson I think that the miracle teaches us. And it, it, uh, it's plain to see. And it's a, a message about the power of God. A miracle like this is incredibly baffling and impressive. Have you ever thought about how this actually looked to do it? Um, I remember years ago watching the, I think I was, I think it was the Jesus film uh, that I saw when I was very young. And they were pretty clever when they did it. They just showed Jesus praying and then they just showed a bunch of fish getting dumped in a basket and a bunch of bread and... They didn't have to, you know, visualize it because you can't visualize it, right? As soon as you start trying to visualize how this works, it, our minds break, right? Um, does he pick up a fish and there was another one where he lifted it? Um, were there just more underneath? Did he break the bread and there was more back on the loaf, right? As, as soon as we try to figure it out and, it, and it, as soon as we try to, 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 to look at the miracle as if we're David Hume, uh, it starts to sound like we're making fun of the miracle. And see, the reality is something like this is simply beyond us to comprehend. That's why it's a miracle. And that's, that's because of who God is, right? This is his world. He is its maker. He's sovereign even over the physical matter of the universe. And that, that truly is at least the immediate point here. It's the reason why there's amazement here. The best I think we could say this morning is that Jesus amazes his disciples and he amazes the crowd. And that actually leads to the next thing I want us to focus on, which is the feedback. Um, we see the feedback of the crowd. Matthew doesn't give us their feedback. But if you go to John's gospel, John in John chapter 6 does record their feedback. And to tell you the truth, the, the, the feedback he gets from the crowd is, is intense and it's really unwelcome what happens here. Because John says this, he says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. That's the immediate reaction they have, which sounds great. Like all of us who are reading along in, in Matthew's gospel thus far, we're like, great. It is so good to see more people recognizing who Jesus is. But then John says, Jesus perceived something else in this answer. There's something else going on here. Jesus perceives that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king. So when they hear prophet and they hear the prophet come into the world, the thing that clicks into their heads is not who Jesus actually is, but it's somebody else. So the feedback here is they love him, but not in the way that Jesus would hope. So what do they mean when they say he's the prophet come into the world? They immediately get him right and wrong at the same time. Right, the prophet they've been looking for is prophesied in Deuteronomy 18.15. So if you look at Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses is speaking of somebody who's going to come after him. And here's what the prophecy says. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then look what God says to Moses in verse 18. 
He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So this is the prophet that they're expecting. Right? The people are saying, look, Joshua, Joshua wasn't really that prophet. He was maybe, a, maybe an immediate fulfillment of it, but there was a greater prophet still to come. Right? God promised them a prophet like Moses. And remember what they thought of Moses. They thought of Moses in very high esteem. And for the people living in Jesus' time, Joshua was not really the fulfillment of this. Joshua was a great leader, but he wasn't the same caliber as Moses. They still expected someone greater. And in this moment after Jesus' miracle, massive crowds come to the conclusion that this man is the one like Moses. Greater than Joshua, greater than Samuel, greater than Elisha or Elijah. This is the one. This is him. They say, we've pinned the tail on the prophet and it's this guy. And, And we know they're right about this because... In Acts chapter 7, Peter gives this sermon to all these people. And he says that Jesus is the fulfillment of that exact promise. So so the people get Jesus right at this moment. He is the prophet that Moses was speaking of. But, and there, there is a big but here. But they draw the wrong conclusion. They assume that this prophet should then be their earthly king. That's the assumption where they go wrong. And Jesus flees from this because because this is not why he came. In this moment, we we learn something about who Jesus is not. And Jesus is not a political figure. He has the opportunity to be and he could be. He would be, if Jesus had been the head of Israel at this moment and, and risen up, he would have been the best leader Israel ever had. They would have built the best earthly kingdom you ever saw. It is so... It's so easy to be pragmatic that we can think the only way we're really making a difference is by being politically involved. And surely the Jewish people told themselves, I'm going to be useful. The rest of you people are are obsessed with the law and you're obsessed with the sacrifices. I'm actually going to make a difference. And that's what the zealots were in Israel. And I have to admit, political involvement does feel practical. It does feel useful. And it's not wrong to be part of it. And yet Jesus says that for him, politics would be a huge distraction from the mission which he has. See, Jesus understands that being a worldly king and the savior of the world are mutually exclusive. He cannot be the king of the world and a leader of an earthly kingdom and die for his people. He cannot be both. He cannot do both. It's it's one or the other. And in fact, there's really no contest. One of those is much more important than the other. One is his mission. One is not. And to see Jesus as this, as a king, is actually to set our sights far too low. The problem with the people who said, let's make him our king, is they thought far too little of Jesus. Um, Politics, I think, in theory, can, if done well and done right, make the world better. But it is nothing compared to eternal life. Right? Debating... Taxation may move the national debt counter or change what the government says we can or can't do, but it can't rescue souls from sin. So for Jesus, there's just no contest. He came to be a savior, not an earthly king, not a politician, which he would have been great at those things, and he's not. They get Jesus right, he's the prophet, and they get him wrong by thinking that means he should be king. So because of the feedback of the people, what happens 
Jesus is forced to respond. And when he does, we learn one final thing about Jesus, which is facts. We learn the real truth here. See, what does Jesus do? Well, we're going to see more of this next week. But in verse 22, Matthew tells us that immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. The plan of Jesus is not to start a political revolution. That is not what he is, right? This forces us to reckon with the truth of who Jesus is then. Who is he? On the one hand, we've already seen it. He's not not a political ruler. He didn't come for that. Um, Every time the people even hint at making him their king, he runs for the hills, right? So that's not why he came. I I just touched on this already, but I'll say, say it again. If we're ever tempted to put our hope in political rulers, this should just really give us pause. Because if politics and rulers were really the most important thing to us, Jesus would have come in that way. He would have. Because he, he would have started an earthly kingdom and all that entails, but he didn't because his mission was greater than that. Instead, his gospel goes out to all kinds of nations. The, the gospel... This is amazing. This is just something that, well, I'll mention this in just a moment. This is something that isn't true of every religion out there. The gospel can be preached in a democratic context, a totalitarian context, an anarchic context. It can be preached in any context you can think of, any, any kind of situation you can think of. The gospel fits there. It doesn't mean the gospel will be welcome there. Uh, it doesn't mean that we would want to live there, but it, it can go there and it can be preached there without having its fundamental integrity uprooted. Right? The fact that the gospel fits in so many political contexts means that all people can come to know the Lord regardless of where they live or who is ruling. Um, one of the great amazing things to me is the way that not even just Christianity, but Presbyterianism is spreading like wildfire in China. An environment in which you would not necessarily think this would be great fertile ground for the gospel to grow and spread. And yet it is. And uh, I met at General Assembly, brothers who are there right now, and they're living in that context, and they're watching the gospel flourish. You would not think that's the kind of ground where it would grow, and yet it is growing. And they pray for us. They pray for opposition for us so that we would learn what it's like to trust in God and not in kings and in chariots. Um, This is something that distinguishes biblical Christianity from something like Islam. In, In Islam, there is really no reading the Quran in any language except Arabic, right? Um, it can spread, Islam can spread, but it happens forcefully and it takes the politics and the language and the culture of Islam with it, right? It takes Arab culture with it. This is why it has to spread forcibly because its spread entails total social, linguistic, political change. Now that doesn't mean there are no downstream effects of Christianity spread, but it means that the gospel can go even if those other changes aren't happening out in front of it. We should praise God that at every turn, Jesus resisted attempts by people to make him an earthly king and create an earthly kingdom. Who is Jesus then? Who is this miracle revealing to us? What is, what is the bigger issue here than just the miracle? 
It's telling us multiple things. One thing it's telling us is this, that he is greater than the prophet Elijah, Elisha. In first Kings, in second Kings chapter four, Elisha fed a hundred with 20 loaves. Here, what does Jesus do? He feeds 5,000 men. And counting women and children, the number is far larger than that. Elisha was a greater prophet, but Jesus is greater than Elisha. Right? So um, when, when you, if you would look at a Jewish person back in Jesus' day and ask him, who are the great prophets? They would point to Moses. They would point to Elijah and Elisha. We also see Jesus is greater than Moses here, right? Because what, it, what happened in Israel? Moses fed Israel with bread also. With manna in Exodus chapter 16. Now we know in both of these cases it was really God who did these things. But these are, these are the prophets that God did these things through. Even Moses didn't do it personally. God did it during the night causing the manna to appear on the ground. Jesus does this feeding personally. He's greater than Moses and he's greater than Elisha. At every step we see Jesus insisting he came to deal with sin. He came to deliver Israel from spiritual Egypt. He came to rescue men and women, boys and girls from a power greater than Pharaoh. I said at the beginning, miracles are never just miracles. They're not ends in themselves in the Bible. They are ways for God to instruct and teach his people what he is like. And so with that in mind, what does this miracle teach us about God? For starters, it teaches us about God's compassion. Jesus fed these people even before they asked. As far as we know, they didn't step out and complain about the food or ask for food. Um, Calvin, in his commentary on this, makes this point. He says, Christ takes care of those who neglect themselves in order to follow him. Christ does not wait until they are starving and crying out. He provides food before they even ask for it. You see that here? The the provision of Jesus is there before they even ask. I wonder if there isn't a need for some of us to be reminded about that, right? If If you're anxious about your needs, you're anxious about what you eat, what you drink, what you wear, where you'll sleep and so on. Isn't there a comfort uh, that Jesus is, is taking care of us even before those issues arrive. He's, he's proactive. He, he takes care before they even have the nerve to ask. I used to be really troubled when I would hear preachers talk about this kind of thing. God provides, God cares for us. You know, you even hear Jesus saying, God cares for the sparrows. He'll take care of you. And yet we also, if we anecdotally think about it, we can think of people Godly people who have gone hungry. There is likely tonight a Chinese pastor sitting in prison quite hungry due to persecution. Well, Calvin actually is thinking about this too. You know, he writes in a context where believers in France are suffering a great deal under the Roman Catholic Church. They're being persecuted. They're being hurt. And so Calvin makes this note as soon as he says the last point that he makes about God taking care of us before our needs even arise. Calvin says this. He says, when help is not immediately forthcoming, it happens for the best of reasons, even though that reason may be hidden from us. So, you know, he is not pretending that every believer is going to always have a full stomach. 
And he doesn't see God as promising that either. And yet he also is giving a word for those who are in this situation or anticipate someday being in this situation. That it is a moment in which we trust the Lord our God even when we don't have the answer forthcoming and we don't know when it will come. In other words, he's saying trust God before it comes or before it doesn't come. So if it doesn't come, we know that God is right and he is good, even if the reason is hidden from us. And the reason is always hidden from us. It teaches us about Christ's compassion. It also teaches us about Christ's sufficiency. Jesus later on in Matthew is going to make a big deal about the number of baskets that are left over. If you notice in the narrative, there are 12 baskets of bread left over. And as I pointed out at the beginning, nothing about Jesus' life or ministry is an accident. Do you think these 12 baskets are an accident? At, at first you might. At first you might think that it's an accident until Jesus actually points to the number and says, didn't you see how many baskets were left? He says this to the disciples. Jesus actually tells them, gather it up, make sure none is wasted. He actually wants an accurate count on what's left. The full amount is 12. Why? Consider this. I, I just pointed out above. There's an exodus pattern here. right? God has rescued his people from the desert. Here they are. They're in the wilderness. Moses was used by God to feed the, the people and bring manna in the wilderness. And in that instance, there are 12 tribes traveling in the wilderness and being fed. 12 children of Israel whose families were provided for in the exodus. And when the manna came down, they were only allowed to gather up enough for that day each time it happened. And so the 12 tribes would gather up enough bread for their families, but not more. What has Jesus done here but shown in a very stark way that he brings enough bread for his people? He brings enough bread for Israel. He has all that they need. What Jesus gives is sufficient. He's revealing to us something about his sufficiency. Jesus really is enough. Jesus is all that we need. Um, If you're united to Christ by faith, there's nothing more that you can do or add to make yourself more acceptable in the sight of God. If If you ask, what makes me acceptable in the sight of God? There's nothing you could say about yourself. What makes you acceptable in the sight of God is Jesus. So if you have Christ, you have it all. You have everything. This passage is also teaching us not just about Jesus' sufficiency, but he's the, he's the God of the Sabbath or the Passover. I mentioned there's nothing accidental about Jesus' life. That includes the timing. This feeding takes place during the Passover. Right, The Passover was also a meal not unlike the one that Jesus prepares. Of course, it was more than a meal. It was a whole observance in which Israel remembered that what happened, the exodus from Egypt was God rescuing his people. The exodus shapes and colors what we see here this morning. Consider the location. The location, the miracle takes place in the wilderness. In Luke, the disciples call it a desolate place. Feeding took place during the Passover in the wilderness. The feeding took place to point us to the Savior who could rescue us from sin and bondage. That's what the Exodus was. It was God's rescue of his people from sin and bondage. So it is with Jesus. Consider that these people, 5,000 strong, came to Jesus instead of going to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. 
John's gospel records that this took place during that time. They have come to the right place. They have come to the right Passover. This is the true Passover. This is the true Savior. This is the true Lamb of God. Jesus makes it very clear. There is bread in the Passover meal that will leave you hungry still. There is wine in the Passover meal that will give you momentary but not lasting joy. There is remembrance of God's deliverance that is meaningful but incomplete. And yet, what does Jesus say? He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. The point of the Passover is to point to a future perfect rescue. The point of the Passover was to reveal to us a bread that will fill us forever. The point of the Passover was the perfect wine that never ever leaves us thirsty or joyless. You see, here's the real message. Believe in Jesus and you have that bread. Believe in Jesus and you have that wine. Trust in Christ and you will never be hungry or thirsty again. Let's pray together. Oh God, we know that you have shown us your son today. You've revealed him to us as your Passover lamb, as the bread of life, as the one who has life in himself. But it's one thing for us to hear, for us to see, for us to understand. And it's another thing for us to love your son. And so send your spirit this morning into the hearts of your people so that we do love your truths. And so that we do rejoice to truly know him. Give us the eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to love Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.